If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Matthew. Uh, you know, I want to sh- show you my family. I, I come by myself. Actually, I came with my son Hudson. He's somewhere. But this is my four boys and my husband, Ben. Ben and I have been married for almost 14 years. So 14 years, which is amazing. As you get going, you realize that it does kind of speed up. Has anybody been married for a while? You realize all of a sudden you're thinking, we've been together a long time. We've had this fight. At least a ton, at least a dozen times. Uh, this is no longer new. We know exactly when this is coming. I can feel it, like an like a earthquake. But anyway, uh, I'm like a dog with an earthquake. So we. Um We've been married. My husband does all of our filming and editing, and he is, he's like a tech. He loves all the kind of techie stuff and apps and all those things. And so I love that part of him because when I'm stuck, I have someone who can fix my computer in my house, which is half half the battle in this generation. And then um, my eldest son is Judah, and Judah is 12 years old, and he wants to be a movie producer when he grows up. He is a very kind young man. Uh, He's one of my, he's really becoming a friend. I think our kids get to a point where they start having their own perspectives and things that they think about. And I just love watching him become a young man. Um, and he is, uh, there's a few things I want to beat him for, but mostly love. And then uh, Hudson is the boy, the son that's with me, and he's on his birthday trip. So he actually came with me to be here, and we celebrated his birthday last week, and then we'll fly home tonight. And his only request was for that dog. And so that dog came into our life, Bear Cunnington, and he does not, He's not trained at all. So this moment right here, in fact, you can't see it, but he's wearing a shock collar right now in this picture. And um, so we basically just, he's, that's fear right there in his eyes. Uh, but he's well-loved and well-cared for. And then uh, Grayson is our blondie. And Grayson is, he is a unique kid. In fact, um, for his sixth birthday, actually sixth Christmas, I asked him, Grayson, of anything in the whole world, what would you like for Christmas? And he said, I would like a tuxedo. And so I went out and bought him a tuxedo. And he wore that tuxedo to kindergarten every single day to kindergarten. And I called my husband and I said, listen, I feel like I'm the most underdressed mom. I feel like I'm chauffeuring this kid around. And, um, and so for his birthday, I said, what kind of theme do you want? He said, I would like a wedding cake. So I went to Walmart, and I bought a three-tier wedding cake and popped the group right. And then he said, Mom, can I ask you one last thing? I said, sure. He goes, do you have a wedding dress? And I was like, we're stopping right here. Like, I can't fit that thing. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't have a wedding dress. So um, it's in our garage. So anyway, that is, uh, that's, that's Grayson. And uh, my favorite story of Grayson I tell all the time is one time he came up to me. He said, Mom, when am I going to be a grown-up? And I said, well, Grayson, you know, you're seven years old. It's, it's going to take a while. And he said, well, when am I going to get married? And I said, again, this is going to take a while. You're seven years old. And I said, but, you know, you could marry me. I'm Italian. You know, I want my kids to stay with me. Because you can marry me and stay with me. And he goes, he looks off the distance for a minute. And he gets this kind of angry look in his face. He says, Mom, I don't want to marry you. I want a woman all to myself. So he's in therapy. And then Beckham, our baby... Beckham is our baby. He's the cherry on the top. He is a joy bomb. He's energetic. He wants to be a chef when he grows up. So anytime I'm cooking, he wants to be in the kitchen. He's loved by everybody. And so those are my boys. I'm not having any more children. Thank you, Jesus. I I reject any prayers towards that. Um, I will cast them out in Jesus' name. Um, I already feel like I had one too many. Just depends on the day which one it is. But I've had, what, does anybody have a lot of kids and you know what I'm talking about? I was like, you were the one we weren't supposed to have. No, you were the one we were supposed to have. No, you were. Anyway, you can't judge me. If you have one child, you can't judge me. So I just reject your judgment right now. I can feel it and I reject it in Jesus' name. 
So uh, anyway, I want to I want to talk for a few minutes. They're at home waiting for me, uh, but I want to talk for a few minutes. Uh, a really, I think, an important message for the church. I grew up as a church kid. My dad was a minister, and I never wanted to be in ministry. Amazingly enough, I couldn't uh, see myself preaching the messages he was preaching or praying the way he was praying. So I was the person who never wanted to be in ministry. And God has a sense of humor, and now that's what I do with my life. Uh, but you know, as I get into the Word, I'm always fascinated because I. I had this one narrative of the church kid narrative, which is we heard things, we read things, we were told things. And then as I've become a Christian adult where I'm beginning to grow in my spiritual life, I I hear things differently. I see them differently. And so we're going to read something that you may have heard before, but I hope to bring context to it to maybe you've never heard it this way before. And so Matthew chapter 10 is really critical and in the first chapter, first verse, uh, Jesus summons his disciples and he anoints them. He gives them an anointing to cast out demons and to pray for the sick, and he encourages them to do those things. And then we kind of jump down to verse 14, actually verse 11. And I'm going to read out of the Amplified Version, which I always call the girl version because there's a lot more words. But I'm going to read out of this. It says, whatever city or village you enter, ask who in it is worthy, who welcomes you and your message, and stay at his house until you leave that city. Verse 12, and as you go into the house, give it your greeting. That is, peace be to this house. If the family living in the house is worthy, welcoming you and your message, give it your blessing of peace. And that is a blessing of well-being and prosperity and favor of God. But if it is not worthy, take it back. Take back your blessing of peace. Verse 14, whoever does not welcome you nor listen to your message as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Today, my message is entitled, Shake the Dust. And I want to talk to you about something that Jesus wanted to give his people and wanted to give them a strategy. And that strategy was critical. In fact, this, what's happening in verse chapter 10 is that, you know, how many of you guys like a good movie? Is anybody like, I like a good movie. Like, if I want to relax, I want a good movie. I want the surround sound on. I want to be, like, the lights out. I want to be in it. Is anybody else like that? Like, I want to have that moment. And, and I love that feeling. And, and there's always a moment in the movie where the camera kind of zooms in and you see the lead character. And it's either they're going into battle or, you know, they're, they're kind of at this crisis moment and the camera zooms in and you're kind of leaning in and you're telling your kids to be quiet because you're trying to hear what's happening. And so this is the scene in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is the leading character, if you will, of the Bible and of this moment. And Jesus is about to give them instruction when he leaves the earth. They do not know he's going to leave the earth. They, they keep, he keeps talking about, you know, he kind of gets a little dark once in a while when he's talking to them of like drinking his blood and eating his flesh. And they're like, this is kind of getting strange. They don't know what he's talking about. But what he's talking about is that he's going to actually exit stage left, go to heaven, and he's going to allow his disciples to be a representation of him on the earth. Now, I just want you to get an idea of this. He has 30 years of preparation, three years of ministry, has a church of 120 people, not a mega church, 120 people, 11 leader, 12 leaders, one of which has had him killed, not a great leadership team. And this is what he's leaving. And he's like, I'm leaving. You guys are good to go. But what he's doing is he's outlining in chapter 10. He's saying, you're going to need some strategy for going into the earth. You're going to need to know what to do and how to do it. And I'm going to give that to you. And you may not even know that I'm doing that right now. But when you look back at what I said, you remember this. You'll understand this. And the first thing he's telling them is, hey, you're going to need a strategy for offense. 
You're going to need a strategy for when things don't happen the way you want it to. You're going to need a strategy for when someone says the wrong thing. You're going to need a strategy for when things turn a little sour in your life. And what he's telling them is this. You're going to go into one city, and they're going to love you. They're going to be like, we loved your message. We loved the anointing you carried. We loved your personality. We loved everything you, like, like, everything you brought to us. We are so excited about it. And then the next place, you're going to bring the exact same thing, the same worship song, into the, a different service. Come on. You're going to bring the same message into a different place. You're going to bring your same, your same, you know, Jesus following self into the next work environment. And they're going to want nothing to do with you. And what he's saying to them is he's saying, listen, it's not actually, I forgot I had that in there. It's okay. Let's just get that off there. Uh, it's not actually as personal as you think. It's not as personal as you think. It's, it actually has nothing to do with you. It doesn't have to do with what you're bringing to the world. It has everything to do with how they're receiving it. And so what he's telling you is stop taking it so personal. When people don't like you, stop taking it so personal. When people don't want to hear what you have to say, stop taking it so personal. When people don't, don't think you've, you've hung the moon and stars, stop it. That's a distraction to where you need to go. And, and their approval is your distraction. Other people's approval of you is a distraction in your life. And so what he's telling them is, is you're going to go places and they're going to love you. And you're going to go places and they're going to hate you. And it's not as personal as you think. In fact, they did it to me. There was one moment I walked in the city and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the next minute they were yelling, give us Barabbas. They were, they were having these, these polar opposite moment. Was Jesus the same person in both environments? Yeah, this person, he's not changing. Like, well, Jesus was a little bipolar, and, you know, one minute he was great, and the next minute he's crazy. No, no, Jesus is the same. He was acting as the same person, but it was the environment in which received him was the outcome of the experience. And what Jesus was telling them was, hey, I need you to have a strategy for this because this is coming your way, and if you don't know how to deal with it, then it's going to actually distract you from where you need to go. This is the thing that's going to hurt you. And so what he says to them is, you're going to need to learn how to dust, take dust your feet off. And when he says this, we have this kind of, oh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That's kind of cool. What a great analogy. But we don't understand is that in the Bible, they would have had a historical context to what he was saying. In fact, they would have looked at this and they would have remembered that the Jews were turning to Israel from pagan lands. They called it Gentile dust. And when they, it, was too, it was considered too unholy for the promised land. And so they would literally shake their feet at the entrance of the holy land, and they would consider it too unholy and that it can't go with them into the land. And so when Jesus said this to the disciples, they would have thought about, oh, you mean like those holy men when they walk into the city and they shake the dust off their feet? Is that what you're talking about? He's saying, yeah, but I'm going to use it in a different context. What I want you to realize is this. The dust from that experience is a distraction to your destiny. The dust is a distraction to your destiny. And, and I like to say offense is an unresolved conflict with a loved one or a friend. An unresolved conflict with a loved one or a friend. How many of you have had a few conflicts in your life? If you haven't, we want stand up. We want to beat you up. Like this is right? All of us have things that happen. We all have dust around us. And what he's saying is, is you're going to, you're going to have dust around you, but you're going to need a strategy to deal with it. Because if you don't, it will distract you. It will take you out and it will rob you of your next season. It'll rob you of your own message and your own uh, purpose on the, on, on the earth. And so Jesus uses something that they would understand. 
And he says, if it happened to me, it will happen to you. And so when we understand, he says to them, I want you to shake the dust off your feet. And if you look into the Greek, it actually means that you're to shake it off as if something's trying to adhere itself to you. So it's as if you're, you're walking through something and it's trying to grab you and you like slip away from it. Have you ever had a, a child in your home with dirty hands? It's like that where they're like, hey, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not, I'm not getting that on me. This is what he's saying to them. There are going to be moments when you're walking through a relational, a relationship. You're going to be walking through an environment of a home. You're going to be having some kind of infer- like conflict with somebody. And at that moment, that conflict wants to attach itself to you so that it can dominate the season you're you're in, dictate and define the season that you're in, and you'll be robbed of that moment. And so what he's telling them is, if you don't see dust as a distraction and something that's trying to adhere itself to you, you will partner with the wrong thing. And then the next environment you go into, you'll take it with you. How many of you know, offended people don't just, they're not offended once. Come on. We all been around people where it's, you're, they're easily offended. You know, it's a matter of time. You have those friends where you know it. That person is mad at everybody, and you know it's coming at you. It's just a matter of minutes before you say the wrong thing, and you know they're talking about you because they've been talking about everybody else around you. So you know it's coming at you. Well, this is what he's saying. He's saying you've got to kind of see that offense is dangerous. He wants you to know, like, this isn't like a no big deal. You know, you're offended, you're not, whatever. No, no, offense can actually hurt you for your future. And if I don't teach you how to deal with it, then you actually won't be able to live the abundant life I've come to give you. You'll be a distraction and you'll actually not be of any use for me in your life. In fact, he, he goes on to really encourage them about shaking off the dust and begins to show them that the dust actually will distract them for what he's doing on the earth. And this is really interesting. Now, I'm going to give you an, an analogy, and this is a total time. Like, if, you were, if you're a millennial or you were not a child of the 80s, you will not understand this. You'll have to kind of, you'll kind of believe me. But those of you that were born or around or understand this, you'll get what I'm talking about. We used to have something called a camera and film. Do you remember this? Now, it's... It's, I know, it's historic. Some of you will have to Google this later. But there was something called a camera and film. And, in fact, how many of you remember the days where we would buy the camera and the film and we'd have to buy the battery for the camera? Do you guys remember that, right? So when we went on a trip, we had to buy the camera, the film, and the batteries. And, and when we ran out of film, we ran out of film. There was no more pictures taken. But when we would go to do a family photo, and you guys remember this, we would line everybody up, we would have a tripod, and we would take 84 pictures at the same moment. Like we would put it on this little auto thing, or maybe your uncle would have a little button, the thing that that had the cord that drug all the way to where everyone was standing. And he would be the clicker. Do you remember this? And we would all stand there and we would yell things like smile, keep your eyes open, nobody move. And we would just stand there and we would take the 80 pictures to get that one photo. Do you remember this? This is what we did with our childhood. What were you doing? We took pictures. Well, how long did you, for hours, we took photos for hours because that's how we did it. And then, and then, we would, we wouldn't even be able to see what we took for a week. Right. So it was just, it was like a, it was a faith moment. We would spend the money 
And we would, we would have to, and you couldn't turn the film in until you used all the film. That's another thing you don't remember. We actually, this is why we have random photos of our, our childhood. I have photos of like my mom's couch and a tree out front. And I would say like, I have all the things. And she'd say, oh, we, I had three photos I had to get rid of. I just had to like take random photos. And then we would yell in the house, I'm going to drop the film off if anybody has any rolls of film. Do you remember this? And so we would go in and look through the junk drawer and grab all the things of film and then we would go to the, the store and we would drop it off, but you couldn't just drop your film off. You had to fill out an envelope for every roll of film. Do you remember this? So if you had 14, you'd be writing your name and your address and your phone number. And you would say, I'll see you in three weeks when I develop the film. And that's how we did it. And if we thought that the film would be great, we would spend the extra amount of money to buy doubles. Do you remember doubles was like a major thing in our generation? Doubles was like, we would buy doubles and we would yell to each other, I get your doubles, which meant like I claim them, they're mine. And then we would do that. And then we would, in faith, people go, I lived a life of faith. No, you didn't. You didn't have camera and film. You have no idea. We had to pay for it before we ever saw it. Do you remember? Like we had to, in faith, believe that somebody took a good photo of this and we would spend the $87. And then we would lie to our family when it was time to pick up the film. We would put it on the calendar, like time to pick up the film. And we would get excited. Like it was an actual moment for us. We would get excited about seeing the photos. We didn't, couldn't remember what was on the film. I mean, it was like happened months and months ago. We have no idea what's on the film. We were all as surprised as anybody was. And then we would pick up the film and try not to make eye contact with the developer because we really didn't know what was on the film. And it could be inappropriate. Someone could have taken the camera into the bathroom. So we just, it was just trying not to look at them as just don't remember me. And then we would take the, the, and we'd run to our car and it was like the price is right. We'd rip open the envelope and we would go through them and we'd throw them in the pile in the passenger seat just to find that one photo that made the $365 worth it that we had. And it was, we had a double, which was awesome, right? We made the F, we made all that, right? So this is how we grew up. I mean, this is how it all worked in our life. We didn't have a a camera and take 18,000 pictures and then go out to pick this one and delete the rest. We had to like do this whole process. I remember one time I went on a missions trip and it was to China and it was a two week like epic trip where we went, we flew into Hong Kong and went to Chang, Chengdu and then we flew to Tibet and Tibet was this, you know, amazing country where we met with monks and we drank yak milk and rode yaks and it was just this incredible trip and I remember buying a roll of film for each day because it was like, I'll, I'll probably never go back there and I haven't to this day and I want to capture this whole thing and then I took all those rolls of film, 14 rolls, and I got doubles because I assumed, again, this is the only documentation of this trip that we spent thousands of dollars to do. And I remember turning them in and, and investing one, it was literally two-week paycheck on all the film. And when I went in to get it, I took it and I walked out to the car and I sat down in my driver's seat and I opened up the envelopes. And as I opened up the envelopes, the first photo had one of those white, like big white blotches on the corner with the, with the beams. And it was like an angelic visitation. It like something was wrong with it. And as I went through each photo, they all had it because you remember this. If you got dust in your lens or you got a scratch on your lens, every photo you took was bad, but you didn't know it until you developed it. That's how we lived. That's how we knew. And when I read this passage, when I read this passage in Matthew chapter 10, I think about what Jesus is, is encouraging them to do. He's saying, you know what? If you don't get the dust out of your lens, then everywhere you go in your life will be distorted. 
You will not see people for who they really are. You will not see if somebody has a a good motive or not. You will not see if they're safe. You will not be able to relax. You'll be on the defense everywhere you go. And what Jesus was telling his disciples is he says, if you don't get the dust from this experience off of you, the next environment you go into, you'll actually treat them poorly. You actually won't represent the message clearly. You'll be treating them like the person who hurt you over here, and yet they haven't done anything. But because you haven't cleansed your lens, now everything where you go is connected to it. Now, I understand that nobody here can identify, like, I don't know if I'm offended, but I love what Jesus says in Luke. Because Jesus says this so clearly in the book of Luke. He says this, if I can find it, that would be awesome. He encourages them by saying, Luke chapter 17, verse 1, he's, then he says to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. I love that. Does anybody get encouraged with that? Like, he's like, hey, guess what? You're human? Good. You're going to be offended. You, you're living on earth with, with all different kinds of people from all different backgrounds who think about life differently, who do life differently. You're going to be offended. People go, I'm not offended. No, you, you, you just aren't close to people. It's hard to be offended when you don't let anybody in. But those of us that actually let people in and love people and, and do life with other people, we get offended. People do stupid things. You do stupid things. Can I get an amen for that at least? You know you do. Sometimes you're an idiot. You don't want to be an idiot. Nobody wants to be an idiot. It was not like our dream. Like, I want to grow up and be an idiot. But we, but we do stupid things. We say stupid things. We don't mean it. We're tired. We're, we're, maybe we're lonely. We do stupid things. Maybe we're hurting. Maybe somebody reminds us of somebody who hurt us, and we react to them, and we don't mean to. But, but all of us do things. We all, let me tell you, as much as you've been offended, you've given other people a, a, an opportunity to be offended at you. Come on. And so it's really critical that we don't look at offense as a negative thing. You go, how does that? I don't understand. Because being offended, feelings have no moral value. A feeling, you don't get to choose your feelings. Your feelings rise to the surface. They come, I'm angry about something. I'm scared about something. I don't like something. Maybe your joy, none of that is dictated by you choosing, okay, I'm going to do this. I love what our pastor says. He says, emotions are like waves. We just get to decide which one we want to ride. So we'll have an emotion and what the Bible says, and I know this biblically, because the Bible says you can be angry and sin not. So it actually says we can have an emotion and still steward that emotion in a way that pleases God. How many is excited about that? So someone's like, I'm mad. I shouldn't be mad about that. Stop. Stop shoving that down. It's disrespectful to what God's trying to reveal to you. If you're angry about something, he's trying to reveal somewhere in your journey where there was hurt, there was pain. Anger is always a secondary emotion to what we are actually experiencing. Did you know that? Anxiety is a secondary. There's something going on in us that's we were reacting to. And I love this scripture. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm half Italian, so clearly I love this scripture. But what I love about this is the idea that offenses are going to come. So take a deep breath. You're not doing something wrong. You're not, you don't lack spirituality because you got offended. The Bible says you're going to be offended, but it's what you do with that offense that's going to make or break your journey. So people are going to do things, you're going to do things, and we're going to have unresolved conflicts that make their way into our life because humans are connected to different things in their life. But what he says to them is this, and I love the amplified version of this passage. 
He says this, Jesus says to his disciples, stumbling blocks. So in, the offenses are probably in the NIV. Stumbling blocks is the way they say it in the amplified version. And then he goes on to define it. He says, temptations and traps set to lure one in to sin. Traps set to lure one in to sin. So he's saying, listen, you're going to be offended, but there's a deeper place of offense is where the danger, where the danger really is. See, I actually went to high school in L.A., and we lived up uh, by Pasadena, and there's some mountains right there. And I remember we had something called possums. Have you ever seen a possum? Possums are nasty. They're like, if, how do we know the devil's real? Possums. Like, that's my kids. That's just, that's our theology. Like, that's, see the possum? The devil's real. All right, we're closed, right? We're done talking about this. So we had a possum problem. And so we had the Humane Society or whatever it was, some kind of society, came in and they put traps in our backyard. And the way they did it where they were these big metal um, traps and they had these kind of metal levers. And the goal was that the animal would wander in to eat the food and their body would trigger it and it would slam the door closed. It wouldn't hurt the animal, but it would trap them in that moment. And then that night, the next day we would go down there and we would see, and they did four, four traps with, and four possums in each trap, and we did it for like two weeks. So don't think about it. That's pretty nasty. But here, here's what's interesting, and this is what Jesus is saying is to his disciples. Offense isn't the issue. Someone doing something wrong, something being said wrong, you getting your feelings hurt, something being misunderstood, that's all going to be normal. That's a part of life. That's about how we deal with life. But he said the problem is, is that offense can actually lock us into moments. And what it actually means is this, is that we can get into a moment where there's a conflict and we just get, we get stuck in it. I think about this, you know, I get the privilege of, we run a, a ministry called Truth to Table, like Farm to Fork, Truth to Table in Redding, California. And I get, I'm on the road about two to three times a month I get to travel, which is awesome. I, I love what I get to do. I mean, I, I'm passionate. I'm obsessed with helping people live their best spiritual life. I just, I love it. I think about it. I go to bed at night thinking about it. I wake up in the morning thinking about it, how to help people. But one thing I notice is when we pray for different individuals, someone will come up and begin to share their story. And they'll say something like, you know, my husband, you know, he walked out on me and with my kids and, you know, I, he, I, he, he lied to me and they'll tell me this story of what happened. And I am in, I'm engrossed because I love people's stories. I love their journey. I kind of feel like because I'm not in their inner world, they're more honest with me. I kind of get the true Hollywood story of it. And so they're sharing it with me and I'm going, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I'll say this to them. So when did this happen? And it always shocks me because more than ever, they will say something like 2008 or this happened four years ago or this happened when I was 19. And I'll think to myself, wait, I thought it literally happened last week because the way you're saying this is like a play-by-play of every moment that happened. You remember what he said. You remember what she said. You remember, it could be anything. And I feel like I was brought right at the moment as if it was like real time. And you know what? When I read the scripture, I realize that that's not their fault. 
Because scripture warns us that when we get trapped into a moment of pain and hurt and offense, guess what? We get locked into that moment and we can't move on. Our emotions stay right there. Our mind stays right there. Our experience stays right there. Life moves on and yet we don't. How many of you know a few people that never moved on? I mean, you're like, I remember meeting people in high school and you see them and you're like, it's been 10 years, it's been 20 years and you're still going to the same bar? You're still sitting around the same people. You're still doing the same thing. It shocks me, but you realize they got trapped. It was like, that's where they got stuck in their moment. And I think about this in our lives. There are things in my life where literally, if we were to sit down and talk about it, I would, I could feel the emotion as if it was today. Come on. We all know it. Something someone said to me, I could think it was 20 years ago, but when I think about what they said, I can feel emotional. I can have an, I can remember what that did to me. I can literally feel as if they were standing there. I know what my rebuttal would be immediately. And this is what Jesus is saying. And he's warning us and he's, he's, he's encouraging us. He's saying, guys, 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 things are going to happen. You can't be immune to pain. You can't be immune if someone's saying something mean or you doing something. You can't. But what you need to realize is that it's a dangerous trap and you'll get stuck there and you will not live a purposeful life. You will not live a free life. You will not live in joy. You will live in pain. And the thing that you will experience will be pain more than the things I came to give you. You see, we will not get free from offense until we realize the danger that it holds for us. Pain, living in offense for a minute makes us feel really powerful. We remember what they did. We can feel it. Anger feels kind of like, it, it's like payback for a minute. Like I can be angry about this and I feel like I'm at least, like I, I, there's been times when I'm like unfollow and I just sit there and, and enjoy, like ha ha ha. They have no idea I unfollowed them. I'm like, unfollow, I'm not following your life anymore. And then I think like, how stupid is that? That I would even use that as leverage. Like nobody cares. But in my will, I'm like, that's what I'm doing to you. But what I don't realize is that it's actually only hurting me. No one cares as much as I care about the situation. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples is he's like, listen, Listen, you get stuck in that moment, you are going to be no good for what's ahead of you. And if you don't get this off of you and you don't deal with this and you don't actually figure out how to get rid of this, you'll get stuck and you'll be of no earthly good. The dust is a distraction to your destiny. Stop being offended that there's dust. Stop it. Stop acting as if somebody, well, I can't believe there would be any hurt feelings. Really? Really? You're offended that you have some pain in your marriage? Really? You've been living with that person every single day, and they are a different person. They think about life different. They do life different. They're having a bad day, and you get the repercussions of that. I know my husband feels that way sometimes. That's real life. We do things, but I can't believe in church how shocked we are when someone does a stupid thing. And we're like, well, I thought you were Jesus on the earth. No, no, if they did it to Jesus then you're going to do the same thing to them. We've just got to stop being shocked. We have to stop being shocked that someone's going to do something offensive. We have to stop acting as if we're so holy that someone can't do anything bad without us, you know, writing them off. Stop writing people off just because it makes you feel powerful. Come on. Do you know what I'm talking? Oh, it's just for these people over here. Okay, so stop. And you know what? I'm preaching that to myself. I'm not preaching that to you. I'm preaching like, have a look, get over it. 
Stop it. There are people waiting for you on the other side of your obedience. There's more to life. And if you get stuck here, you will not help the people you're called to help. You will not live the abundant life you're called to live. And it will only rob you of tomorrow. So you'll have to get aggressive about these things to get them out of your perspective or they will hurt you. This is why Jesus was so passionate about this topic. In Ephesians 4, 27, it says, and do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin. I love this. Do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin. And then he gives you the four ways we're led into sin. Now, listen, this is pretty, this is pretty eye-opening. He says, by holding a grudge, by nurturing anger, by harboring resentment, or by cultivating bitterness. It's pretty clear. Hey, you want to be led into sin? Hold a grudge. You want to be led into sin? Nurture that anger. You want to be led into sin? Well, you know what? Make sure you cultivate that bitterness. And this is the danger. You can hold on to that. No one's going to come at you and say, don't do that. Don't hold that. That's up to you. You're powerful and you can make any decision you want to partner with whatever you want to partner with. But what he's saying is, is it actually gives entryway for the enemy of your soul to come manipulate you. So the control that you have with the Holy Spirit to partner and have freedom, he'll manipulate you. And so all of a sudden, he'll be, he'll be telling you what thoughts to think. He'll be telling you what you should be believing. And what, because we've given him access, you see, anger and, and nurturing that grudge gives the enemy access to the way that we think about life, the way that we do life, keeping our world very small. Sin keeps our world small. That's why God's like, don't, don't get sin away from you. It keeps your world so small. It keeps you like an orphan. An orphan's mentality is, I have to take care of myself. There's no one out there for me. I've got to meet every one of my needs, and I have a need, and that's my only focus. That's the orphan spirit. But the spirit of a son or a daughter says, I have a need. I'm not ignoring the need, but I also have a father. And no good, with, no good thing will he withhold from me. And so if he says not yet, then I'm going to trust that. If he says yes, then I'm going to lean into it. I trust that I have someone else involved that is also passionate about meeting my needs just as much as I am. And that's the spirit of a son or a daughter. And that's the spirit we need to have. So conflicted areas become entry points for the enemy. And they, get, they begin to hurt us. And so he says to us, be careful, be careful, be careful. He says, you have to shake the dust, which means shake off that which is trying to adhere itself to you. So how do we deal with offense? Why is it so critical that we deal with offense? I want to end with this passage in the Bible. In the book of Acts, there was this man named Saul. And Saul was a Christian killing uh, leader, and he was feared, and he was known for killing Christians. And one day he goes along this path and he has this radical salvation moment. It's on the road to Damascus and he goes from Saul to Paul. His name changes. He just has this, you'll have to read about it. It's worth reading about. And then all of a sudden he wants to reach Christians. Now think about this. Paul's trying to start a church for Christians, but he had been killing them the week before. Like how many people would want to go to Paul's church? Not everybody would be like, honey, I think we should look for another church. I'm not sure I want to go to his church. I'm not very confident in the children's ministry. So he's killing Christians and nobody's believes him. And at one point in Acts, we find Acts chapter 28, that he gets on a boat. And as he's on this boat, the boat is shipwrecked. And so he lands on the shore. And as he lands on the shore, it's cold. Everyone's wet. He, they go to make a fire. 
And the Bible says he goes over to grab some sticks to put on the fire. And when he grabs the sticks to place it on the fire, it says that there was a venomous snake that reached up and grabbed his hand. And everyone around the fire knew that that snake was deadly and that he was going to die. They all knew it. They're like, he's going to die. We saw the kind of snake. We all know. This is how it works. He's going to die. And the Bible says at that moment, when Paul was bit by the snake, the Bible says, and he shook it off. And when he shook it off and they saw that he didn't die from it, the Bible says that everyone around the fire began to say, this must be a man of God because of how he dealt with that. And this is what I believe for us at Believers Center for us in this room right now. I believe that how we deal with offense and our ability to shake it off will be a story known and read by everyone around us. The Bible says we are epistles known and read, which means people don't know Christ by what we say. People know Christ by how we live. And so what it says here is, if we really want people to believe that this is really activated in our life as people of faith, then how we deal with offense is going to be a testimony to them. And this is what I believe for many of us. They're going to say, wait a minute, you went through what and you're still here? Wait a minute, they did what to you and you still believe? Wait a minute, you, you went through this and you've been able to like, you look like you should be the most depressed person in the room and you have joy? I don't understand. And you will say, no, no, by the grace of God, I've been able to shake off that which tried to adhere itself to me so that I can move on to my destiny. You see, there is something about realizing that the dust is a distraction to our destiny and the way that people see us. You see, our kids are going to recognize how we deal with offense. Our kids are going to say, how did mom deal when that person said something mean about her? When that person didn't do the right thing, did she sit back and gripe about them and gossip about them and slander them? When that leader didn't do something right, did mom or dad sit in the living room and talk about them? And every time they got in the car after church, they said nasty things or did they shake it off? Did they show us a way out? Did they show us that we didn't have to be attached to this, but we could be free from this very moment? Did, Did I witness that? And I'm telling you, it will be one of your greatest greatest strengths as a human being on the face of the earth. This is why Jesus said, as a leader, and you go, oh, I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. If anyone is following you, you are a leader. Whether you are a parent, whether you are an employee, whether you are a citizen, come on, you are a leader. And he says, listen, you better have a strategy for this because offenses are going to come. Offenses are going to come, but you better know how to shake it off. And like that great theologian once said, shake, shake, shake it off. Shake, (laughs) shake, shake it off. Let's pray. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Lord, I thank you for your grace that's in the room. I thank you for every man and woman here. I believe that this word is a prophetic word for many of them to know what they need to do. Like like they have been faced with things this last year that has tried to adhere itself to them. There have been things this year that have tried to take them out. In fact, there are ministry opportunities that they didn't have that they believe they should have had. There are people that you thought would stay by your side that left. There is money that you thought would come in that never came in. There is someone that you've been caring for, a broken person in your life that left you. There's disappointment from others. There's heartbreak. There's loss. There's rejection. But the truth is, you can't take it with you. If you're really going to go into your purpose and into your future, you're going to have to clean that, clean, clean, clean that lens so that you can see what God is doing in your life. Some of you have been holding people hostage. 
You've been holding the conversation hostage. You've been holding them in your mind, and it's time to let them go. It's time to let it lose its power over your life. It's time to stop allowing their words to be repetitive in your mind over and over to where you can't be free from it. It's time to let it go. You cannot take it with you. You cannot take it with you. You need to be free today. And today I believe that God wants to come. And what I sense in my spirit is that he's walking around and he wants to unlock every cage. Just unlock. Let me, sweetheart, give me that. Son, give me that. That that conversation, that marriage, that story, that your mom. Let me unlock that story that's been in your life. And let me let you get free today. As I preach this message, I want to give you a moment to respond. Just with your heart bowed, maybe your eyes closed. I want you to ask yourself the hard question, have I been in a dust storm right now? Is there something in my life that's keeping me from seeing life clearly? A dust storm. There's been something that's said, something that's been done, something that's kept me. And you know, the truth is, is that I'm not free from them and I need to be free. If that's you and you're willing to be courageous enough to admit it, I want you just to lift your hand and wave at me and say, that's me. Yep. Lots and lots of hands. In fact, the majority of us the majority of us, which I'm so proud of you guys because that takes courage to admit. I want to pray for you, but what I want you to do, because you're powerful and I can't do anything for you unless you partner with it and you have to partner with the Holy Spirit. I want you to, this, this moment, I want you to symbolically take your hands, those that raise their hands, and put them in front of you and put that situation in front of you, whether it's a person, whether it was something that was said over you, whether it's a parent, Whatever it is, I want you to take your hands in front of you and I want you to imagine that they're in your hands right now. Just, I want you to place them. Might be a bunch of people, might be a whole bunch of people, but the goal is that you you see them. You might even think of them by name or think of the situation by name. And I want you to tell God right now, Lord, I give you this. I'm taking them out of the trap of my pain, the trap of my unforgiveness, the trap of my anger, the trap of my moment, and I'm letting them out. I need to let this go. I'm shaking it off. I'm giving it to you. And I want you to symbolically just kind of give it to him. Say, God, I give you this person. I give you the situation. I release this to you. It's safer in your hands. It's safer in your hands. I need to move on. Just say this out loud. The dust has been a distraction to my destiny, but not anymore. Holy Spirit, come right now. Touch him right now, Jesus.